Al Jazeera podcast. Commercial companies offering adventures to the ends of the earth and beyond are attracting billions of dollars every year. Some of the dangers have been exposed by the plight of the five men on board the Titan submersible that went missing. So are these multi-billion dollar industries contributing to science and are they benefiting society? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guest now for today's Inside Story in Kiel, Germany, Sylvia Sander, who's chair of the European Marine Board Working Group on Deep Sea and Ocean Health. In Bristol, Ezzy Pearson, an astrophysicist and space journalist. And in Kristiansand in Norway, Victor Lund Shamas, who's head of sociology and social work at the University of Agde. Thank you to all three of you for joining us on Inside Story today. Sylvia in Kiel, let me start with you. As we've said, in the past few years, commercial space tourism uh, companies owned by billionaires Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson and Elon Musk have been uh, making headlines for sending paying customers into space. How developed is commercial deep ocean exploration and why do people go into these extreme expeditions? Well, that's a good question. I, th- I think it's an adventure, right? Um, people have done adventures since the humans are on inhabiting the Earth. Earth. So um, I think that's one of the main reasons um, that people just aim for the adventure. Um, I'm not. I think I'm quite certain that um, this kind of um, tourism that has led now to this tragic loss of of the Titan. Um, is not helping, um, you know, learning more about the deep sea, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we also, um, from the Marine Board, from this working group I'm leading, we are looking into um, the impact of research even we are doing. And we are doing this in principle to to learn um, and understand the ocean and the uh, ecosystem and not just to have a glimpse of um, of some sea creatures down there. Um, I mean, the, the deep ecosystem is, is very fragile and very slow. It's very mm. cold and very deep. So everything is growing very, very slowly and it can easily be, be disturbed. Um, so noise is an issue, um, right. but also whirling, whirling up um, sediment and so on. So, um, I mean, it's, it's very sad for those people, definitely. Right. But I don't really see how this kind of adventure is helping um, research um, in general for the deep sea. Sylvia, how, how developed is commercial deep ocean exploration when you compare it to, to space commercial exploration? I, I do know that there are, uh, there are really some adventures, I think, which um, are um, rich enough to fund their own vessels, um, like the person you've, you've mentioned before, and that are, you know, sponsoring themselves to, to mm. go down there um, with a little crew. And um, But then there are these real tourism organizations um, like uh, with the Titan now. I think they're, they're different things again. We can't just say um, um, commercial um, organizations um, going down into the deep sea. Right. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, you have to differentiate. And, of course, there are also... 
um, organizations like the Smith Ocean Organization that are non-governmental, um, that are really funding research, like mm -hmm. true research. So I think it's uh, like always, it's not black or white and you it's have not to clear differentiate. Cut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Ezzy, let me come to you uh, and we talk about space now because that's what you specialize in. In terms of scientific explorations, of course, we've come leap, leap and, and bounds in the past 10 years. We've collected data from one of Saturn's moons. We've sent telescopes into deep, deep space. How have private companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, disrupted this traditional model of government-led space explorations? And, and what do you see as the benefits and drawbacks to them? One of the big changes that's happened is that it's led to a lot more smaller missions happening. Um, so, for instance, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was the Axiom 2 mission, which allowed the Saudi uh, nation to put their first two astronauts into space on board a SpaceX rocket. And so it allows people who might not have been able to go into space before because they couldn't afford to do an entire space program and build their own rockets, mm -hmm. but they can now pay for one to send their, their their experiments and their astronauts into space. And we're seeing that uh, that's going to happen a lot at the moon, specifically over the next couple of years. Um, there's a whole bunch of private landers that are planning on being able to go to the moon uh, and take experiments there. Partly that's to fuel NASA's Artemis missions, but also there's lots of people who from everybody from universities to private individuals are going to be able to use those. Um, the problem that comes with that is this is a very new industry. There's not a lot of regulation that's going on at the moment, mm. uh, which means basically if you you get the okay to, to launch your vehicle, you can pretty much, once you're in space, there's, there's not a lot of people who can control and say what you do once you're up there. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one of the, the problems that's coming in from that. Right. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that you bring up the, the question of regulation, because that's a real issue when it comes to, to deep sea exploration. And I'll come back to you, Sylvia, in a moment. But uh, I want to get your thoughts first, Victor. It seems that the question today isn't whether you can actually get there to space or the deep ocean. It's whether you can afford to get there. What are your thoughts about these mm -hmm. commercial expeditions into space and, and the deep sea? How, how do you see them benefiting society? Well, there's no doubt that space exploration in and of itself can be hugely beneficial to humanity. Um, and certainly under the aegis of the state or private enterprise, um, we've seen technology, everything from lead bulbs to certain types of running shoes, CAT scans, uh, wireless headsets, and so on, have also been said to have benefited in some way from, from the space race during the Cold War. And that might very well continue under the umbrella of these uh, private entrepreneurs. And uh, space exploration satisfies... Uh, a kind of innate human desire to explore and to venture forth into the unknown. There seems to be a kind of common human impulse to, to explore and figure out what lies beyond the next bend, so to speak. But there are significant risks and costs, I would argue, uh, associated with um, transferring power to these private enterprises in the domain of space exploration. Uh -huh. So it's, in a way, hugely ironic that uh, people like Elon Musk speak of turning us into a multi-planetary species, um, a form of risk mitigation against uh, potentially catastrophic climate change, when the dozens and hundreds of rocket launches we see taking place now around the world threaten to accelerate climate change. And the United Nations uh, Environment Program speaks of the creation of temporary ozone, ozone holes around uh, launch sites. So there are 
potentially significant environmental harms from these constant rocket launches. Um, and that's, that's just one issue. There's also the political regulatory side of things, as the previous mm. speaker mentioned, mm. who controls what goes on in outer right. space. So risks and costs, especially when it comes to the environment. But what about, uh, Victor, ethical concerns? What ethical concerns should be considered here? Well, one of the benefits of what is called old space uh, meaning the kind of Cold War model where the state, the government, is in control of what goes on in terms of outer space is that then you have a certain element of democratic control. Uh, so, so the question is really who controls what goes on in outer space in the future? Will it be governments and, by extension, the people, the public, or will it be big private corporations and individual super wealthy billionaires, perhaps even trillionaires? Uh, we may may come into a situation where where the first trillionaire is a kind of space entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there is that issue. And there's also the issue, of course, of uh, militarization of space, which is connected tangentially to this issue. Um, we have satellite technology is, of course, heavily involved in the building of a kind of globe spanning military industrial complex. There is a test ban treaty of 1963 that bans nuclear weapons testing in outer space, but we've seen the establishment of the U.S. Space Force as an element of, of militarization, not nuclearization necessarily, but militarization of mm. outer space, and more will probably happen on that front in the years to come. Yeah. Sylvia, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, Victor posed an important question there about who controls and who benefits from this. When it comes to deep sea exploration, this is an an issue, uh, especially in terms of the regulation. Uh, What what kind of challenges are, are you seeing and how do you address them in your view? I mean, I think in that sense, we're a little ahead of space uh, in the marine realm because we do have um, jurisdiction and and legislation in place. We've got the um, United Nations um, uh, um, uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, and um, we've also just yesterday actually signed the BBNJ, Mm -hmm. which is the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. So we do have legal instruments in place, and it's not kind of the Wild West down there. Um, of course, there is um, also, uh, uh, this is the, the area, the open ocean, um, outside of the national jurisdiction. Um, of course, people can do what the national jurisdiction is allowing within the EEZ, so that's different too, um, and that counts for you know, I guess, private operations, but also things like deep-sea mining and so on. Um, but I think um, people have realized that it's really necessary to set up organizations that are taking care of the ocean um, for human kindhood and, and for, for um, the benefit of the Earth. Um, and probably it's the only time that before we destroy, we as the humans destroy an ecosystem, um, that we are thinking about it, right? Right. And try to at least put um, regulations in place. Um, I guess how good they will work in the end, that that will be be seen. But um, there is an, uh, an effort to do so. Okay, interesting. Ezzy, you know, we talked about some of the significant achievements in Uh, uh, space exploration and also commercial space exploration to some extent. But there are a lot of people asking today, why is the money being spent, you know, by companies, by these private companies and commercial companies? Why is this not being uh, spent on, on, you know, man's exploration and and given to governments, for example? Would that make a difference, you think? 
Well, with a lot of these, the private-based companies, obviously, mm -hmm. they are they are businesses. They are yeah. trying to make money, but it's people using money to make more money. So that's their sort of primary goal. Right. They have larger goals of being able to be able to to perhaps go onto Mars and do things like that, but. That is sort of their primary concern. But what, what's um, the rewar reward in terms of, of financial gain and scientific exploration? So in terms of, of scientific exploration, it's yeah. it's really kind of it's more with spaceflight, it's more of a, of a tool and it's giving access to people to be able to then go on and do what they want with it. So it is these private spaceflight companies are still open to um governments. In fact, that, that's one of the reasons why Blue Origin and SpaceX exist is because NASA mm -hmm. hired them exactly. to build these spacecraft to, to operate for them. Um, and that's, in fact, one of NASA's big goals is to support U.S. companies um, in the space industry. So it's, it's giving a, a different way to be able to conduct these scientific experiments that is out of the hands of just this one government agency. Um, is 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 the general idea it is obviously it still costs a lot of money but it mm. is a lot cheaper to to hire a company to send your spacecraft into space than it is to build a rocket to send it up there yourself right uh victor you, your thoughts about this and and you know looking at the future how might technology and scientific advancements change our approach to space exploration and even deep sea exploration well, I, I think it's important to bear in mind that there is a certain kind of false self-understanding amongst um, libertarian Silicon Valley billionaires as kind of heroes of free enterprise. And I, I agree with the previous speaker that there is, in fact, a kind of imbrication with government funding and contract infrastructure. So this kind of Ayn Rand idea that many of these space entrepreneurs have about themselves is belied by their almost complete dependency and, and reliance on, on government funding. So, so it's important to, to not necessarily take the industry at their own, um, uh, accept their own premises, as it were. And um, so what, a co-author, Thomas Holland and myself, have developed this concept, which we call capitalist kind. It's the idea that certain private businessmen and entrepreneurs like to present themselves as if they are acting on behalf of humanity. Uh -huh. But in reality, reality, of course, they are acting on behalf of their own um, pocketbooks, so to speak, on behalf of the bottom line of their companies. And so that carries with it certain risks. Oh, in the outer space domain, we also have this Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It's a very progressive, in some sense, piece of legislation, an international treaty, which states that the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all of uh, mankind, all of humankind. So there is this kind of legal ideal uh, from, from the Cold War era that uh, the resources on offer out in outer space should be made available to all of humanity, but whether that will actually become reality or not seems uh, somewhat dubious, uh, given mm -hmm. the the way things are going uh, politically and economically in this in yeah. this field. Yeah, uh, Sylvia, I, speaking about uh, you know the economics of all of it, I, I was curious to, to know whether the, these companies that are engaging in deep sea exploration today are they properly accounting for for the potential costs and, and the risks and potential cost of rescue missions, for example, uh, with the example of the recent case? And, uh, you know, are they uh, also uh, accounting for the environmental damage that comes with it? I doubt that they will do. I mean, this will cost um, a huge amount of money, um, this rescue um, activity. And But, I mean, that's, that's 
always in the sea. If something gets lost, um, everybody is helping to find it, right? Right. But um, of course, people are putting themselves at risk um, at their own choice. Um, so I'm not entirely sure if mm. if they are insured for it to cover the cost or not. Mm -hmm. um, I. I in, in, Victor, I, in fact, doubt it. Yeah, v mm -hmm. Victor, do, okay, do, you, do you know about this? I mean, uh, do they take into account the, the risks and costs associated with, you know, failing in a mission like this? I think all that's priced into the contracts. I don't mm -hmm. want to speak to the detailed day-to-day -day operations and kind of mm -hmm. business affairs of these corporations, which are not, by and large, publicly listed to corporations. Right. So, so, so some of those details are probably not, not available to the public or to researchers. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would reiterate the the importance of of maintaining the the validity of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, um, despite these developments. Right. So so then the question becomes, Sylvia, and I'm going to come to you, Ezzy, in a second. But I just wanted to get you, your thoughts, Sylvia, on how to balance the risk to the individuals, to the environment. Um, and, and, you know, for the organizations leading these trips against the potential value for society as a whole? How do we balance it all? I mean, to be fair, I don't see a benefit to the society mm. in an activity as we see here, um, sadly, every um, news we are watching. Um, I really don't see any benefit to it. It's really a, an adventure people are taking, and they're paying money for that, right? Um, and uh, the the research um, that is done in the deep sea, which is very expensive, is funded by um, uh, national organizations like governments, right, to do research. They are still uh, like um, international, and they are open to to all nations. Right. But um, they are they are not funded by these kind of organizations. Okay, so, so tell us about some of the recent successes in, in which are not funded by these private companies. Tell us about some of the recent successes in deep sea exploration and what we've learned as a result. Well, I mean, in the first place, we, we know very little about the deep sea, right? Mm -hmm. And every time sort of a, a headcount or something like that is done, we find that over 50% of the species we are bringing up and we um, can... Um, uh, specify are unknown so far. So there is a vast amount of uh, organisms uh, and species in the deep sea we have got no idea about. And every time an expedition is going down, they find new species. Um, and in some cases, we uh, they find that they are actually um, in, in large numbers down there, right? That they are really having a big uh, impact on the ecosystem down there. And we still, by now, haven't known about them. Mm -hmm. So um, more than 90% really of the deep sea is completely unknown um, because of its vastness, um, because of its depth, because it is very deep, really, and we, we, it's, it's difficult to get down there. Right. Um, but, uh, I mean, successes at the moment is really that we do find these organisms and that we, we have got um, the possibility of, um, collecting samples in a very good way, mostly using um, remote-operated vehicles because they are much cheaper than manned submersibles. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And they do have exactly the same capability as manned submersibles. So there are very few manned submersibles actually in, in action for true research okay. at the moment.
as he assessing, you know, the risks associated with these types of missions, whether in space or in the deep sea, how do you think nations, organizations, and or companies prepare for uh, the possibility of, of accidents or emergencies? And in other words, how do we balance the desire for exploration with the potential risks and dangers associated with it? Well, certainly when it comes to uh, national agencies, you know, NASA's and East, uh, the European Space Agencies are sort of the big example, there is a, a lot of concern put on safety. There's a lot of measures that have been put into place. And also looking back historically throughout the, um, the space age, there have been tragedies, people have died, and they've taken a lot of responsibility for that when it happened. There's always been a huge inquest. Um, human spaceflight would stop there, uh, after Challenger. It stopped for, for about two years whilst they investigated exactly what was going on to make sure that those mistakes wouldn't happen again. So certainly there is a precedent of, of what to do in the space industry to make sure and minimise risks, um, partly because if when you're you want to protect human lives um, and also, you know, it's you they don't want to lose their missions either. So it's it's safety is always a very big concern, whether that's human or um, a robotic mission, even mm. whether that will filter on to these private companies uh, remains to be seen. Uh, it is worth saying that there is a lot, uh, particularly in the US, there is a lot of regulations about what you can launch. So the FAA won't let you launch a spacecraft if they think it's dangerous. Um, mm. You need to be able to prove that it can support humans safely before they'll even let you launch it. Um, so certainly in in the US, um, there is a, there is a lot of safety checks that go on when it comes to uh, space flight. Okay, uh, Victor, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, we've heard about the risks and the challenges, the risks to the environment, the risks to the individuals as well. What role do you think? government and non-governmental organizations can can play in better regulating all this? Well, I think uh, government can play a significant and, and expanded role in terms of uh, particularly imp implementing an idea like a space tax, a particular tax on space resources, asteroid mining, for instance, uh, but also satellite launches and, and satellite orbits. Asteroid mining is kind of a science fiction idea. It's still a ways in the future, but we need to start thinking about the political, economic, regulatory environment around those potentially significant um, resources out there. Uh, and one model for inspiration might be the case of Norway. So I'm based in, in Norway, uh, Scandinavian society, which uh, discovered significant oil resources in the 60s and 70s and taxed those resources uh, very heavily indeed in order to fund a generous welfare state with things like free public health care and, and higher education and so on. And so it's really allowed the Norwegian government to, to fund uh, its day-to-day -day activities. And, and um, in lieu of state ownership of space activities, there needs to be at least a minimum, at a minimum a kind of space tax in place to capture windfall profits and ensure that ordinary people, taxpayers, are remunerated in some fashion uh, for those significant investments they've made in establishing what we might call the broad ecosystem that, that has allowed private enterprise to blossom around outer space activities today. Hmm. Uh, very interesting. Ezi, the benefits, what, what are your thoughts on this? How do, does everyone benefit from this? And what, what exciting developments are on the horizon that you think might have a, an impact on society? Space industry hmm. is very much a part of our daily lives. Um, hmm. 
GPS systems. I use one every day. It's how food gets around the world, um, communications, all of these kinds of things. There is there is very big benefits that come from being able to get into space. Uh, there's also quite a lot of research that can be done with humans in spaceflight. And it might be much more long term, but getting out there and exploring the universe, I personally think would be a, a, a good thing. The question is, is with, when is those benefits going to, to show? Um, I think in terms of things that we've got coming up, that's going to be really interesting. Uh, I mentioned earlier, people are going to be going back to the moon uh, with mm. NASA's Artemis mission. And there's going to be a lot more robotic missions that are going to go ahead of that, that are going to take a lot of smaller missions towards them. There's there's lots of small companies that are, are sending rovers and things to the surface of the moon. Um, so I think it's going to be a, a big opportunity for some of the, the smaller industries out there to start okay. benefiting from space exploration. All right, Sylvia, you have the last word. What does the future look like for deep sea exploration? What does it look like? Well, I think it's really robotics, um, uh, autonomous uh, instrumentations that use only little energy and can cover long distances. So. I mean, there is even um, kind of a no impact um, call for for research, um, and I'm not sure if I'm if I'm for that. But there is thought, you know, of of sending out remote operated um, uh, instrumentation to do the research for us. Um, I guess it can be done in in a lot of um, fields, you know, where you like where you map or um, where you you can measure remotely but not everything can be done remotely so i think the the research expeditions on board of a ship will will remain and um and i think they are very necessary to really discover more of the ocean and to see the the connectivity um mm -hmm. of everything because we we haven't fully under, un, uh, understood that and i think it's very important to know the baseline we are at at this very moment with our okay. ocean before something like climate change kicks in and changes it right yeah um and there is yeah i i think but i think really remote operated vehicles are the future for us to go Okay, thank you all very much for a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot, certainly. Thank you, Sylvia Sander, Ezi Pearson, and Victor Lund Shamas. Thank you. This episode was produced by Christina da Costa, Laura Khan, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Yasir Romani. The program was edited by Andre Ostusen, Lynn Nguyen, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode. This week on The Take, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in the U.S. on a charm offensive. We look at what that means for India-U.S. relations. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.